0: All right, welcome to Theology Thursday. It's been a long time. We're back. It's been a long time coming. Look at Kevin's already uh, getting saucy with his uh, his chat persona. Yeah, and truth
1: be told, uh, there's someone else trying to hide in, uh, in this true. video room. We should reveal Stan. him. Stan.
0: Kevin, you want to show the people who's really here? Oh, check it out. Fan favorite, recurring fan character, fan. Stan Vitus. <laughs> guess what though we're writing him out of the
1: story in season three that's right now. true yeah his he's a
0: fan favorite but you know what he's yeah. people don't know yeah, we're killing him off him out, any man. day now welcome everybody it's cool you know we always talk about the people who give us likes before we've actually even done anything and i appreciate the optimism yeah it balances out all the dislikes that come along the way that's true that's true because they happen you know we see them like live yeah you'll see a I thumbs just, down oh, go man. floating up the screen on what we can see come on i will say that we have bargained with kevin's job yeah it's true for likes and you would and the- be told <laughs> most
1: of the stuff is only when kevin starts to do something that thumbs down that's that that's happened. true
0: that's true too you know the kevin kevin's like the everybody knows this now but kevin sets thumbs up. everything up
1: for us he does this theology thursday would not happen without kevin And it would not happen with a lot of the uh, upfront work figuring out how to do all this stuff without Stanley. That's true. Stanley spent
0: a lot of hours in this room with us, figuring stuff out. Here's the secret: we were like, how do we make it look like we have a high-budget professional? podcasting studio when none of us know how to do any of this yeah. and we and don't have the, the money it's just for it. by how,
1: how do we get it to how work? How do we make it work? How do we get it to work?
0: We've been, you guys wouldn't know this from watching, but we've been like scrambling in the 11th hour to figure out Skype before we call a famous apologist. Yeah, there, there's <laughs> been a lot of issues at the end. But so it's yeah. been a while. We're back. Been a while. We're back. And um, a few kind of updates just to let everybody know about. Um, the first one, and we don't have all the details on this quite yet, but we're going to start just to make this a kind of more sustainable long-term thing for us. We want to shift to doing this show in seasons. So rather than just sort of like haphazardly taking a break when we're desperate, like we just did for Easter, Mm -hmm. we're just going to kind of design the year to have a set number of seasons with breaks in between. That'll give us more time to kind of focus on exactly what we want to do on Theology Thursday and make sure that we have um, everything figured out and have a rhythm that's kind of manageable. So more details coming up as far as how long this current season, will, did we call this season one then? No, this is already season. What? This is the pilot Three? program. Oh, dang. we're not
1: picked up by our major network yet.
0: So we have to get picked up is, is Mr. Hong's the major net network that we're hoping to get. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we got yeah. no sponsorships today. No sponsors. No. Yeah. That's true. I, we're sponsored by Crossway with their ESV. Crossway just might sponsor us. No, they don't have any big names yet. No. <laughs> So and yeah, we, we see, can't we, even get
1: sponsored by them, man.
0: No, not Zevia, not Mister. It Hong. is
1: be, uh, the the episode thing is kind of cool because then we could focus on certain things and take breaks and put more time into it. But uh, but truth be told, it's just as if you attend South Valley Community Church, you know we've been simultaneously doing online work for every Sunday. We've been doing in person gatherings at Gilroy Campus and Hollister Campus. All of the ministries still are going on in one way or another or some digital form or something so there's there's just a level of sustainability going on so we're looking forward to the episode yeah and we want to
0: and we want to keep uh we want to keep doing it so a lot of the conversations like how can we keep doing this and survive also preaching every sunday in person and online (laughs) so yeah so that's that's what we got going on another thing to let you guys know about is that when this series ends not the season but the kind of series we're in on based on Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. When this ends, we're gonna do a Q&A, which we usually do after longer series. Um, so, ooh, Zakia Sullivan says yes. she can sponsor us with cookies. Done. Done deal. Zakia, we will take it. Um, I've never even oh. experienced, I don't know if Zakia can bake, but I'm assuming she's coming in with some confidence. She, she ran a half marathon me. with us a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh,
1: one note yeah. that I forgot to mention is Kimball's book actually is now it's sold out on Amazon. Wow! Congratulations, um, so Dan. So they're going, I think, the second printing. But if you go to the webpage, you'll just have to wait if you want to order it for it to get reprinted and restocked. That's um,
0: awesome! Hey, round of applause for Dan if you can manage it, yeah, Kevin. I think
1: as of yeah, yeah I think out. as of yesterday, Amazon said it's it's backordered. Um, you can still get a Kindle one right away, of course. Yeah, and, it, and or we, you can go to another another site, but a lot of people just go to Amazon.
0: And we've promoted a lot, but man, I really cannot recommend it enough. Well, so, I,
1: I mean, I take full credit. Theology Thursday is that's the true for all. You the know success. what? Here's the thing.
0: This is factual. That book was not sold out before we talked about it on theology Thursday. And now it is a plus B so equals C a a squared plus B squared yeah, equals C done. squared. Pythagoras had it right from the get go. So, okay. So going to give us cookies. Um, now, <laughs> this has already jumped the shark. We haven't even got into yeah, it. Yeah, we got to get started. Yeah. So Q&A, just wanted you, you guys to know, we're going to do a kind of how not to read the Bible Q&A at the end of this. So if you have questions on the episodes, feel free to put those in things we've talked about in the past. Or frankly, if you have any kind of question about weird stuff in the Bible, verse you've always been confused about, or just a general biblical principle you're not sure about, um, this is the time to do it. It'll be kind of a you know, weird stuff in the Bible. So email you for that. Email me for that. Kevin can put my email up on the screen as soon as he's done celebrating the cookies in the chat, <laughs> <He> <laughs> which is get, what I mean, he don't get. none. No, Kevin doesn't get, well, I don't know. That might have to be, that might have to be up to Zakia.
1: But yeah, uh, email Sam, anything that we've covered in this series or anything weird with the Bible that you have a question about. And then the last, uh, episode if you will of this before we leave the book behind we'll cover all those questions and that
0: should be in three weeks we got two more episodes in the series and then we'll do uh we'll do the q a and by then we'll know what the next series is on to so all right cool ready to jump in yeah so tonight this whole series has been topics that are like giant rabbit holes that you could spend an entire series on not just one night so we well, that was a weird sound i wonder if people yeah. at home could hear that Isaac's uh, microphone cable made a weird sound. Made a screechy like horror movie thing right before someone gets stabbed. It was like a creaking old door opening. Good. So tonight we're talking about another one of those topics that could like completely take all night and it's kind of rife with controversy. So we're gonna do our best to do the kind of high level overview of something that is really important. And it's about science and the Bible. Can Christians in the modern world trust the validity of the Bible in view of what we know about modern science? and I mean, you you were a youth pastor for a long time. Stan in the room is a youth pastor currently. And and I've heard you say many times that one of the kind of steady things in modern culture has been science as a reason why people walk away from the faith.
1: Yeah, there was a, a some Barner research that came out two years ago. Maybe it's three years now, but essentially it was kind of surveying young people about their biggest concerns with Christianity. And again and again, this comes up is that it appears as if the Bible is at odds with modern scientific discovery or, the science, or the, the, the science contradicts claims in the Bible.
0: And it's a big concern,
1: always, continually, so it's still
0: here. And it becomes a particularly big problem when you have somebody who is, say, taught a really particular way of reading the Bible for their whole life. And then the first time they ever even hear that there's mm-hmm. other thoughts on this is when they go to college they're kind of outside of their normal support system. And, um, it's kind of like a, uh, old story that keeps coming true as far as, you know, Hey, you never told me about this. So like everything we want to talk about it here. Yeah. Um, and so there's a bunch of big scientific questions and a lot of them have to do with, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about, but most of the debate centers around the creation narrative Genesis one and two. Um, and so you get tons of questions. I wrote just a few examples down. Um, Was the earth really created in six literal 24 hour days? Is the earth really only 6,000 years old? A bunch of specific questions about the sequence of creation. Like um, how do you have light? How do you have day and night and stuff like that before the sun has even been created on day four? Um, And then other things like that, you know, that, hey, how come plants are created before the sun? How are they doing photosynthesis? Mm -hmm. And questions like that. Um, Questions about evolution in the Bible. Are they compatible? Um, Did dinosaurs and humans exist at the same time? Dan in the book talks about that famous t-shirt that's um Jesus riding a T-Rex. Yeah. Dan loves that by the way. The shirt? The shirt, he said he like tried desperately to get one online but they were sold out everywhere. It's Jesus riding a T-Rex. I should have gotten the picture to show you guys and it just says, "We don't know f- we can't know for sure if Jesus rode dinosaurs, but he probably did." Mm. Which I'm I I think that's pretty funny. So yeah, then you know you got Eve being made from Adam's rib, Adam being made from the dust, the, a talking snake, like thing after Tons thing after stuff. thing that makes you just go like how does any of this comport with modern science? And so what we want to do tonight is talk about how these texts are supposed to work because so far we've already done a lot of this in the series, but the primary purpose that we're trying to do when we read the Bible is figure out what is the author and what is the text mm-hmm. trying to communicate. And when it comes to understanding science and how it could, could jive or not jive with the Bible, a lot of it comes down to is, science, something that's a primary concern of this text or not. Um, so I guess the simple way to say it is we might be looking for information that the author of the text wasn't actually trying to give necessarily. Yeah, it wasn't, we, it wasn't a major focus of what he had to say. The
1: thing A high schooler is worrying about after he had a biology class in ninth grade that modeled talked about evolution, that the insecurities and anxiety that that person may be encountering are not what, first and foremost, what Genesis is, tr- like, let me encourage the 21st century modern American um, as they wrestle with modern scientific discoveries. That's not to say that Genesis doesn't speak to those issues or it has nothing to inform the modern right. person with, but it is to say is that people were every generation wrestles with different sorts of questions and the, and the ultimate question is what is genesis trying to to answer
0: yeah and so in that are a bunch of hermeneutical questions what genre are we reading are we inter, are we kind of coming across figures of speech are we um you know are we dealing with things that sound like they're making scientific claims but actually aren't was that were you, was that to us or to okay this is what happens when you get stan in the room man it's like trying to communicate non-verbally stuff, with us this is why you can't be a part stand, of this stand. Come on, we man. told you from the beginning, you can't be in here no matter how much you beg. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to do ultimately and, and by the way, just as a side note, Isaac won't brag about this, but Isaac's doctoral research is really focused around this area. So you are truly an expert on the first couple chapters of Genesis. That's about it. That's the only thing you're an expert on.
1: Yeah, that's about it.
0: Uh, people at the church know I don't ever claim to be an expert. <laughs> on any other <laughs> subject
1: outside of Genesis chapter one.
0: So you are very much at home here. Yeah. And so one one thing I wanna start with here when we talk about kind of genre and what is the author trying to communicate, and it's a word that gets used a lot. It's, it's kind of weird to jump into this first, but I think it's important, um, is the word literal and literally is a major sticking point here. And a lot of the time within, this isn't even between Christians and non-Christians, but within Christianity, a lot of the debate ends up being about well, are you, I just want to read the Bible literally? Yeah, there's and a problem with that. Yeah, right?
1: and there and there's a sense in which people can come off smug, like, "Are you one of those people who takes the Bible literally all of the time?" Or you might want to, in in a posture that's kind of set a tone of, "No, I take the Bible serious." You might say something like, "Well, I take the Bible right. literally." The problem is, is all communication is filled with multiple forms of language, so it's like the sun rose today yeah did Do it i liter- take that literally well no the sun didn't like literally like it woke up in the morning and started to yeah. right the sun up. didn't move at all but it's not wrong for me to say no i actually believe the sun rose it just it's depending upon what sense so all communication all communication is complex and has nuance um and you just have to to understand what what type of language is being used at at, at that moment and Sometimes people make that more complicated, but when you're having a discussion with a friend, in normal everyday conversation, if you talk with another human being for more than 10 minutes, in that 10 minute conversation, you are gonna be using figures of speech, right. metaphors, you're gonna be using ultra objective, literal language, and without even no, no, like being aware of it, your brain is processing yeah, that. you it do it automatically. It isn't hiccuping up, like, well, what yeah. you, is that? Is John that a, Lennox
0: had an example of this, where he said, if I tell you, I saw my friend Joe, Flying down the road in his car yesterday.
1: You don't stop and are like, wait a second. Wait a second here.
0: Cars don't fly. Or yeah. does he have a new car that? And so there's a mix in that one sentence of literal and figurative language to paint a picture of what was really literally happening. Yeah. So you know that he means that your friend Joe is literally real. He was literally on the road in his car, but it wasn't literally flying. Yeah. And you, but you know how to translate and, and that. And your into job truth.
1: with the Bible is you want to be as honest with the text. So there's a, there's a way where like modern scientific discovery is kind of in friction or tension with this part of the Bible. And they go, Oh, that's just a metaphor. and allegory. Right. don't use and it as a, as a get out of jail a free card, get out of jail free card. But there are times when the Bible is describing something using metaphoric language. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus speaks in parables.
0: Jesus says, I am the door.
1: Jesus is not literally a door. He is functioning in a door-like manner, yeah. which means you have to go through him to get to the Father type of thing. And
0: this is what's so important is, is it true that Jesus is a door? Yes, that's true. And and more importantly than literal, it's authoritative. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the, the idea of Jesus being a door is true, it's real, and it's incredibly important, but it's not literally true. And He's it's not more actually. important
1: for him to be functioning door-like and not be you know something that you could knock on that the salvific truth is actually greater than just the literal door. So oftentimes we say that because people can often just throw around those words to try to shut down an argument when it's much more it's much more complex yeah. than that.
0: And usually there's there are some examples that are incredibly obvious like Jesus saying I am the door is clearly a metaphor. And then there's some stuff that's clearly concrete. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of middle ground that's in between. And I think where a lot of the debate in Genesis 1 and 2 lies is where we draw those lines. Mm-hmm. But again, you, it's important. To, you actually use this example, Isaac, but it's important to recognize that all of us accept that there are some metaphors in Genesis 1. So um, I want to be careful, too, and just say I'm, it sounds like I'm setting us up to say that a metaphorical reading of Genesis 1 is the yeah. proper way to read it. That's not what I'm driving towards. I'm just saying we got to be I, I, I want us to stop drawing unnecessary lines, especially within Christianity. And so the example that I've heard you give before is um, when it says that God saw that something was good. Yeah. That is itself analogous language by definition, because God is spirit. He doesn't have eyes. So he does in some way bear witness to it. He sees in some sense that's
1: analogous to the human experience of observing something with our eyeballs. But it's not in a one to one kind of yeah. corresponding ratio. Light did
0: not enter rods and cones in his eye. In his eyeballs, to, and, and then similarly, when he speaks, there's no vibrating vocal cords because God doesn't have vocal cords. His spirit not doesn't have a body.
1: Yeah, and that's easier to tell when it's like in Isaiah, where it's like the Lord will cover you with His wings. Right. Like, well, we're not talking about wings here, but there's always some type of an, some type of analogous language being used to describe an infinite being that is pure spirit and is pure actuality type right. of thing. So there has to be some language. Um, but yeah, that's just important to note, not because this is our get out of jail free card. Don't worry, wherever modern science contradicts the Bible, it's just a metaphor and you don't have to worry about it. that's 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 being dishonest right. with the text because where the text wants to say,
0: this is history, we better take it as history. Right, absolutely. So that's just an important kind of upfront thing is talking about when you, when you do literature, which is what's happening anytime you read the Bible, um, you've got to know with nuance that part of understanding the reality that's being expressed is knowing how to look for metaphors and, and, and imagery and stuff like that. Now, with that in mind, um, we talked about how we're trying to figure out what this is trying to teach. And I would argue, and I think we would argue, that Genesis 1 and 2 is not primarily trying to teach 21st century science.
1: No, no, I, it it well. I would say it like this: Genesis one is not being written the way a modern history book would be written. Right. So it's 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 not that it's not historical. Exactly. But it's not adopting the same way your textbook, and you don't want it to be. You don't want it to be a, a, a textbook version of it because it's trying to communicate more to you than just it's, it's more than historic. It's not that it's not historical. It's, it's like trans historical in the sense that it's speaking transcendent truth to such a degree that it's greater than just recalling some mere events.
0: And specifically recalling mere events in the manner that 21st century people expect or desire it to. There's some, there's almost a um, chronological arrogance involved in expecting that, well, as a person in 2021, I want the Bible to explain the creation event in the way that 2021. Yeah. I wanted to
1: explain the way an astrophysicist would explain quantum mechanics ty- type of thing or something like that. And it's just like, no, that's, that's not the way it's choosing to describe the event.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with, um, something we talked about in biblical interpretation section of theology Thursday a long time ago that God chose to reveal eternal truth in historically particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, God did not choose to reveal this information in 2021. He chose to reveal it over the course of hundreds, if not thousands of years, a long, long time ago on the other side of the world. And so, um, again, there's just sort of a, you wanna almost step back and go, what's the function of the Bible? It's to reveal eternal truth over time.
1: Yeah, and there's maybe a couple other important thoughts. One is, it's not that the Bible is at, it's it's like a category mistake to say the Bible is at odds with science because, science presupposes an observable universe by human beings. And these presuppose that these human beings can trust their senses to observe a consistent and reliable world that Mm. operates on certain laws. Yeah. And all of that presuppose. If you believe the world acts consistently based upon laws, you are presupposing some things. And I don't think you get there without theism as a worldview. So unless there's a God who created a structured and ordered world, and also created human beings that can trust their senses as they observe said phenomena, you don't get at a reliable way to do the scientific method. So it's not that it's, it's like in one sense, it's like, no, it's better than that you need, you need a theistic framework of a God who creates something in order to have a world that you could even do this thing called science. in. now some would argue with that and there's all kinds of arguments that go back and forth. But for me, man, it's very hard to yeah. come to that without some theistic structure. It's
0: very similar to what we say all the time about ethics and morality, that mm. the grounding for the idea of ethics and morality and equality and all these other things that we take for yeah. granted as modern Western people requires and again, people disagree with this, too, but yeah. requires in some sense theism and a moral authority. And similarly, we believe human beings made in the image of God with the capacity for creativity and discovery yeah. and creation mm-hmm. of our own. Like you, you set those beings loose in a world that obeys laws and structure created by God. Science is an expected result of that. Mm-hmm. So they're not only not at odds with each other, to your point, point, act- one actually follows from the other. Yeah,
1: and the other thing you hinted at is there's an arrogance involved here, is that the 21st century modern person says, the Bible should use the language and the scientific consensus of the day to describe, the crea- to describe creation. Yeah. It's like, if the, if the Bible was using that exact precise language of what hum- humans thought was true 500 years ago, then it would say things in a certain way where we'd be looking back, well, the Bible's yeah. wrong 50 and, years ago. And if you, if you believe that in 200 years, we're going to believe the universe operates in the same way that we do today. It again, reveals an arrogance Yeah. because that's true. you go a hundred years into the future and we're going to look, man, we believe some dumb stuff, man, we believe some dumb stuff. So Genesis kind of sits above yeah. all, all of those of science. things mm-hmm. and looks down and speaks truth. That is so true. That no matter what generation, you, no matter what scientific consensus you might find yourself in, Genesis is still speaking truth about history and the world and the way it operates, and more importantly about the God who created it.
0: Yeah, there's something, and we'll get to that in a second, which I think is the main point that we want to get to, but man, the idea that it would arbitrarily be 21st century Western scientific standards, is, is completely bizarre. Yeah. I mean, if God chose to do it that way, let's say he did write it in the language of 21st century Western people, how would the Bible have functioned for the last 2,000 years? everyone
1: else would be going like, what? And then, probably in 200 because then it's presupposing we've arrived. Exactly, yeah, it, that's what it is. Presupposing that humanity has arrived. We figured it out, and now we need to check if the Bible is compatible with our conclusions. And it's so, you know, I, I'm not calling you arrogant if you think that or wrestle with that. But I want you to consider and really, really think of it. Like you're saying man, we finally figured it all out. And now we need to check if the Bible meets up with our conclusions. Yeah. You know, full well, if Jesus doesn't come back, we're here 500 years from now, people are going to be going like the laugh at what we think is, is do you you remember they used to think they taught, taught I mean, think about this one. That's really quick. That's the, that's the heart of the scientific endeavor is to discover and correct to dis it's and and good scientists know this. They're not, they'll never say it's completely settled no matter what new discoveries we make. When there's new discoveries, you adjust the models and try to discover as much truth as possible.
0: And this happens on a faster scale than most people realize until you like dive into a particular area. Mm -hmm. But I remember my undergrad was in psychology and I remember learning about how like in the last hundred years, mere decades ago, people believed that like a lot of the emotional and mental health related problems that women had started in their uterus. So they'd literally be like, well, this woman's suffering from hysteria mm-hmm. and hysteria comes from the woman's uterus. And I'm, I'm, we're not talking about 500 years ago, yeah. we're talking about like 70 years ago. And so, that, so if you're looking at the Bible and expecting it to comport with modern science at every given moment, then you'd be, you might be somebody in you know, the 40s reading reading the Bible and going, well, why isn't there anything about hysteria in here? Yeah. Cause now we know that. So it's just, there's a, there's a historical humility that I think people need to have at any given moment and say, we're doing the best we can to understand the universe with the tools available right now, mm-hmm. but have the humility to know it's always going to change. And the Bible, the way God chose to reveal himself, like you said, was in transcendent truth that arrives at a historically particular time, yeah. but speaks to every time period forever. So, with all that in mind, I think we could talk about that all day, but with that in mind, let's drill down a little bit into what the original recipients of this story would have been interested in Mm -hmm. and kind of what their world more would have been like. What is, so if God's not primarily concerned with communicating science in Genesis one and Mm two, what is he kind of primarily concerned with? What's, what's happening with Israel when this is being, when these stories are being told and why does it matter?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, It's easy to miss because we've had, we have a couple thousand years of Judeo Christian tradition to kind of instill these truths into us. But the Bible makes the radical claim first and foremost, that there's, there's one God, like, again, you're like, oh, let's get on to the good stuff. We know that, but what about, what about the age of the earth? The age of the earth, those are important questions. Those are great questions and we need to dialogue and wrestle through those things, but I'm telling you ancient people in the ancient Near East reading Genesis one go, there's only one God in this story. There's only one God. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And then more importantly, there's no kind of war or yeah, cosmic conflict huge. that the creator has to overcome. And then it, see, we, we're, we we do not think about these things because we get caught up asking the wrong sets of questions. So not only is there one God, but then he's good.
0: He's good. He's not capricious and fickle.
1: We, again, we've had 2,000 years of Judeo Christian tradition to instill this into us. But what makes you believe if there is a God, he ought to be good? Yeah. What? So for ancient. Or that people, there ought
0: to be one of them with a capital G. There's
1: one and he should be good. You're pre- presupposing that this deity ought to be good. Why would you think that? For all of. Look. The world doesn't appear to be good. There's a lot of evil in the world. Nature seems to harm us. The seas are a dangerous place, mountains, tops with thunder and lightning. It doesn't look like the world is operating like a complete good place. So most ancient people um, believed that the gods are like on a vast spectrum of moral goodness. And none of them were like morally perfect. There were cert- certainly ones that were better at treating humans than others like, you know, Athena is probably better than Zeus. Yeah, um, I mean, Zeus got mad at a dude, Prome- Prometheus, and yeah. is like, chains him to a rock and a vulture eats his liver every day because Zeus eternally regenerates his liver to re- be re-eaten by yeah. the vulture every single day. So there's certainly things that are better, but no one was presupposing. If there is a God he should be or ought to be 100 good all of the time so an ancient reader reads genesis 1 and they first notice there's one god they second notice that and and this is this in the pattern every single day you miss this because if you grew up christian you're missing this every single day god sees and he declares good now you might have not missed it growing up in the church so i want to take back my comment a little bit but you missed probably the significance of every single day the text is saying this god creates Good. And then the third major thing is, and this is completely radical, is that God creates a world and environment that is good for the purpose of human flourishing.
0: Right, now how does that compare? This is a loaded question because I know the answer, but how does that compare to the other creation myths of other ancient Near Eastern people and why humans come to exist in those stories?
1: So so one of the most famous creation accounts is a Babylonian creation account. Called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, the story begins with two sort of primordial gods in primordial waters. There's Apsu and Tiamat. And their waters are it says they're commingling together. And as the waters of these two deities commingle, new gods are born. Now, the new gods that are born are very noisy and chaotic. And so the father god, Apsu, is like, dude, I'm not Sick getting of these kids, man. I'm not getting any rest. I got no rest, no sleep. And so he devises a plan to kill them type of thing. And because of that, this cosmic kind of conflict ensues. And long story short, uh, the Babylonian chief god Marduk is the one who finally wins all the battles and is crowned chief. But at the end of that story, Marduk is crowned king and everyone's going like, the other gods are going like, oh man, now we got all this work to do. Like I'm the sun god yeah i gotta do xyz because prior
0: to that they were, there was a struggle for who would be the top dog
1: yeah and and so they basically raised this complaint to marduk and then marduk out of the carcass of the one of the fallen generals um that he's slain he creates humanity and human beings are created to do the work of the gods that the gods don't want to do so that they can chill so they can rest they can have rest
0: and that that is much like that sounds weird if you're a Western person, but that is so much more normal in the ancient yeah. world than Genesis 1.
1: Yeah, the, obviously the gods had some stuff to do and they didn't want to do it, so they, they made us and we ought to serve them.
0: And even later and Some than are that, good,
1: some are better. Again, some are better than others. Some some They're not like the gods are 100%, like Hades is more messed up than this one, obviously. But the idea was, w- what in Genesis is radical, is that there's one God, he's a good God, and then um he creates a, an environment for human beings to flourish in which is again radically different i mean you mentioned you mentioned my work in, in genesis that's all the years of studying that's my my here's the three points <laughs> this is the entire like dissertation work there's one god he's good god and he created for human flourishing and those three thoughts isaac are, had to write
0: 100 pages about each of those thoughts yeah, yeah.
1: so <laughs> it's they are really truly radical yeah and, and
0: especially i mean the idea that god wants to kind of co-labor alongside humanity in his creation. It's so, instead of just ruling over them with an iron fist, he's like, no, we're gonna walk together and I'm gonna assign you projects so that together we can make creation flourish. Yeah. And you're
1: invited into the rhythm of work and rest that he's mm. established. Instead
0: not, of you work so I can rest. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's powerful. Yeah, and and, and I mean-
1: and so the, th- the ancient reader is going, "That's that's the polemic and rhetoric of Genesis. They, they are not like, and again, it's not to, it's not to knock these questions because they are important questions, but they're not going, you know,
0: how old's the earth?
1: Well, here's, here's a perfect example. Um, you mentioned it in day, day three plants arise, but on day four, the sun, the sun and moon are created. Um, and when the church fathers encountered that, they didn't go like, well, how can you have plants without a sun? They go, God created that way. And this is, uh, Basil says this, as well as Chrysostom. Chrysostom has a long quote um, that basically is saying, God knew that there would be pagans who would be tempted to worship the sun. So in order, he says something along the lines of, so he would show them the stupidity of their ways and reveal their foolishness. And to let the world know that all provision comes from him and not the solar body of the sun, he made sure to create plant life before the sun. So I don't you,
0: I don't need the sun for these plants.
1: These, exactly. So these are brilliant people encountering the text um, in early Christian history. And they're not, they're
0: not, they're not going. How did photosynthesis happen? And it's happen not then? because
1: they're dumb. Right. Like people say, well, they didn't know that that the sun, that plants need the sun. No, of course of they, course knew they that. do. Of course they do. Modern people like to look back. They they knew that their crops grew because yeah. of the sun. C.S.
0: Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. Yeah. That you they look absolutely
1: back knew the crops grew and needed the sun and needed water. That's the whole point of why he's saying what he's saying. He's like, oh no, God just wants to demonstrate that that's not
0: he doesn't need the sun and now imagine just the historical context of the first recipients of these stories so you're an israelite who just spent 400 years in egypt most likely worshiping or at least dabbling in the worship of egyptian gods and goddesses and surrounded by that world of all these different powerful gods and goddesses who's the top dog ra god of the sun sun god when the sun rises that's Ra waking up every day you leave that environment and go out into the crazy wilderness where i don't know how we're going to even survive out here and the origin story you hear is on day four god created that thing yeah the one god created that light that the most powerful nation on earth says is the most powerful god i mean that is such a powerful polemic against not just egypt but egypt in particular because of their immediate context
1: yeah and here's another example of this so God, and it depends on the vast majority of translations say that God created the great sea creatures or the great whales or the great fish. And the Hebrew word is tananim. It's 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 plural for whatever it is. But tananim is often translated in modern translations as sea creature or whale. But most likely the the best and appropriate translation for that in, in all of the litera- the contemporary literature is sea monster. It's a sea monster. It's the these, great beasts of the there's ocean. There's great great beast of the ocean. And the modern person goes, oh no, we now know there's not sea monsters. And so the Bible is wrong. And what the Bible is trying to do is one of two things. One, guess what? First, (laughs) this isn't the meaning, but guess what? There are monster-like creatures in the ocean, first off. It's a
0: false dichotomy to say, well, there either are or are not. Yeah.
1: And then two, everyone in the ancient world believed in great sea monsters and those sea monsters had great power and so what Genesis is doing is saying no matter what's in the ocean sea monsters whether they're real or not everything in the waters were created by a sovereign God who is in control and the sea monsters are in creaturely submission to the sovereign God yeah. where in other realities and worldviews and accounts not everything is in creaturely submission to a sovereign deity there's Cosmic chaos. Yeah. There's wars. The war, chaos monsters of the desert yeah. and ocean. And so, Genesis says, "Oh yeah, the Tananim, God made them, and guess what? They do what He says. They they're good, and they do what He says. They're un, they're in creaturely submission." It reminds to me of that um,
0: in Job when God's kind of giving His smackdown speech at the end of the whole giant book. Yeah, He says. He says, "Do you have control over Leviathan? Would you put him on a rope and let your daughter take him on a walk?" That's yeah. one of my favorite verses in the whole book of Job, and it's that same idea. It's like, "Do you even have? Do you have any idea what the sovereignty of God looks like?" Yeah, I, I, t- I take Leviathan for a walk on a rope, kind of a thing. And so there is, and again, it's it's a great example of kind of the whole problem with the debate because it's a false dichotomy. It's a fall. It's almost like you're forcing a question that's unnecessary in the yeah. sense that it's like. Well, we know there's not sea monsters. Well, we know there's not sea monsters the way we've chosen to describe them, but if you're swimming in the middle of the ocean and a giant squid comes up, what do you call that? You know what I mean? That's a monster.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's absolutely right. So it's like, first off, the way you framed it was good. We're saying, yes or no, are there sea monsters? And I preface it with, well, even if you wanna say yes, I would argue, man, To an ancient person or a modern person, if you're honest with yourself, you don't in the ocean go, well, that's actually classified under the scientific name. It's like, dude, there was a blue whale and that thing was a beast. But more so than that, in my my opinion, that's not what Genesis wants the readers to know who believe that there are great monstrous beasts in the sea, that they are in creaturely submission. Give you another example of how this works. So in day four, God creates the sun and the moon but the text doesn't say he creates the sun and the moon. It says he creates the greater light and lesser light. Yeah, It does not say sun, does not say moon. It says greater light and lesser light. And you may just go over that and go, ah, oh, cool. Um, well, most cultures, not most cultures, the vast majority of everyone worship the sun and the moon. And oftentimes their word for sun was the actual name of the deity. So uh, in, in Hebrew, if you were gonna use the Hebrew word for sun or the Hebrew word for moon, that would actually sound nearly identical to the actual names of surrounding cultures that worship those objects. So it's like the, the author is removing even any hint of polytheistic language. It's like, I'm not even gonna say, I'm, gonna say, I'm not even gonna say these words. I'm just gonna say the greater light and the lesser light so that you know, again, that they are in 100% creaturely submission to the only true deity, the only true yeah. God in the text.
0: The other reason why these are such helpful examples to me is that it it points out the fact that God is not rushing in to correct a historical idea that doesn't necessarily comport with 21st century science. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, it, his concern isn't with saying, you know, well, the, the Leviathan- The
1: composition of the moon right. is, here's the, you know, the actual like, rock formation. It's not a
0: God. It's a flying rock. And he doesn't rush in and say, well, Leviathan, it's not a, it's not a demonic chaos monster. It's actually just a really big whale. His point is he's taking the existing categories that that audience understands and making the theological message primary using those. Yeah. So it's, it's similar to how, you know, like, like in the Bible, there's expressions, Hebraic expressions about like, you know, your, your, the center of your emotions and purpose is in your bowels and your gut. Yeah. And God doesn't say, well, actually it's your brain that does that primarily.
1: Yeah, just like you wouldn't. Right. If someone says, I love you with all my heart. Well, you don't love To my me wife. With your no, heart. you don't. You don't, right. you, don't uh, <laughs> exactly. you, you don't love people with your heart type type of thing. You wouldn't do that. And so again, it's important to note. That's not to say it's not concerned with history or times or chronologies. It's just to say that those are peripheral or secondary compared to these massive ultimate truth, which by the way, you may say, well, I'm a modern person and part of the reason why I want to know these other stuff because we've solved those other things. It's like, no, you don't. You're the thing you wrestle with most still is believing in the one true God submitting to his will and actually knowing deep in your bones that he is a good God who's for you, not against you. What you need to know when life hits you like a train, when you get the bad diagnosis when you lose your job when your marriage is falling apart what you need to know is that the one good god who created all things loves you and is for you not against you
0: yeah they are truly bigger questions
1: yeah so it's it's they they create a worldview for you to live in and it gives you these transcendent truths that don't bend or have to flex to whatever modern science may be saying today because modern science will probably be be saying, hopefully we do learn more and we correct our errors. And we, so it's a way to sit above it.
0: Yeah. It's not to say it doesn't matter because I mean, we're about to do kind of a speed round talking about a few different views on this, but it's to say, put it in its proper place. So where does that question belong? It belongs beneath the primary concerns of Genesis. So start with the main concerns, And then by all means like these other things are worth discussion
1: and this is this is why it's so important to me is um and if you if you come to this church you know church unity is a big deal for me um i mean jesus before the cross prays that we would be unified to such a degree that we would be one as he and the father are one so oftentimes in christian circles we can get into the creation wars and what that looks like is everyone has a view of what actually happened in the first seven days of creation and you're gonna briefly go over these, but there's all these different views. And what oftentimes can occur is people will say, Oh, you believe this. Well, then you don't take the Bible serious or you're not a Christian type of thing. And what I would argue for is that we need to show a level of charity to one another and say that you can believe this about Genesis one and still be a Jesus loving, Bible
0: believing Christian yeah, you just. You can as much take the, the Bible other. seriously. And have a different view of this than me yeah it doesn't mean that you're not taking it literally or that you're you don't respect the authority of scripture um because that's just a lot of that that really happens a lot and it's a shame Um,
1: yeah a whole lot and there are things that are i would say you have there are things you draw your line like no that genesis one does not mean that it can you have to everyone's got to draw their lines but what i'm arguing is just that there should be more generous and charitable appreciation for people within the body of christ so that it's it's not like you don't love Jesus unless you agree with me at all of these all yeah. of these points, because um, there are people way smarter than you who hold to a different view than yeah. you do. Uh, I and say it that all the time. It doesn't mean so pluralism and there's all everyone's truth is right. It just means approach it with like epistemological humility and be gracious towards one another and dialogue and debate. The questions of modern science and yeah. timelines they matter but if we focus on what's primary, God's a good God. He's for, he created the world. There's no other gods. He's the only, if you focus on that, then you don't have to be so angry yeah. about those seconds.
0: you can lower the stakes of yeah. those debates. Now, before we move on to talking about, um, some of the different views, I do want to address Ryan's question. Cause it's a good one. And it's a, uh, And it's just a a good opportunity to clarify if you could bring that up. Um, Ryan said, he quotes me as saying, God doesn't have eyes. And he says, well, there's many references to God's eyes in verses in the Bible. And that's 100% true. And that's sort of the point I was making, Ryan, which is that the Bible uses analogous, symbolic, I should say, language all the time about God. So the Bible is very clear that God is spirit and does not have a body other than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But God for all eternity is spirit, not body. Yeah. Jesus says, Jesus says,
1: God is not flesh and bone. Yeah. Um, so when the Bible, the Bible talks about the body of Christ and it's the church, yeah. The body of Christ is not literally in that sense, the flesh and bone of Jesus. Cause we know Jesus is actually in a resurrected body right now. Right. Um, and but, so when it says God was walking in the garden with Adam, we don't mean God was a physical human being walking in the garden yeah. with Adam. That's in fact, sort of when we go back a few weeks to our, I think we talked about it in our Mormon episode, Yeah, our, yeah. our, our book on um, Mormonism. Our episode on Mormonism yeah. is like there's a temptation to read that and say, well, that means God had a body and he's, he's like you or me and he's walking around in the garden. Yeah.
0: And there's some really obvious examples. Like God says, I rescued you from Egypt with my strong arm. It's like there's no big giant arm coming out of heaven and punching Pharaoh. The point is his might is being symbolized by an arm. Um, So God definitely
1: sees, but he never has to look because God is eternally omniscient and he's currently omnipresent. So
0: he is everywhere. It's very good news that he doesn't have eyes because he he doesn't doesn't have to point them He
1: doesn't have to look. He sees all things all of the time.
0: But even the language of seeing... Is analogous. Like that's yes. just the closest we can get to understanding what the perception of God is yeah. like. Um, so yeah, it's he, the uh, the Bible is definitely true of the idea of him of him being able to see, but he does not have physical eyes. No. Yeah.
1: Now, and the the only time he does is in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, and now forever as a resurrected body. Yeah. In heaven, Jesus has a resurrected body and including eyes. He's got hands you know, tells Thomas, come, come, man, you're so wrong. Let me show you what's up, man.
0: (laughs) Let me show you what's up, man, is the message version of that verse, actually. That's the the new living message. And then Thomas said, my Lord and my God, that's that's what's up. That's the new living message right there. (laughs) So, okay, we've got 15 minutes left, which is actually good because we sort of wanted to almost do this as a speed round because the main purpose of tonight was not to like rehearse and explain all of the different views on... Uh, Genesis 1 and 2. But just yeah. it is worth it to kind of explain the range really briefly. Just a part of it is just if you grew up or as a Christian, you have one really strong kind of like idea of how this works. It's important to know there are faithful Christians who take the Bible really seriously, who believe a bunch of different stuff. Um, so we're going to move pretty quick here. Um, I'll just kind of fly through them, Isaac, and feel free yeah. to jump in if there's something I'm neglecting or, or not explaining well. Um, but our overall point here, again, is Christians can agree to disagree about things like this without assuming that your people who think something different aren't taking the Bible seriously or literally. Um, so one that's, that's already come up quite a bit is the young earth view. And that's, that's the view that takes the 24 hour period days as kind of at face value. Straightforward. It's the most natural reading of the text, especially in English that you just, It's, these are six literal 24 hour periods. Um, and then it's also associated with the idea that the earth is around 6,000 years old on the low end, all the way to about 10,000 years on the high end. And the way they get there, um, is that if it's, if it's six days of creation and then you take all of the genealogies in Genesis as being exact and without any gaps in between, then that would make the earth about 6,000 years old. Yeah.
1: And some would say it's like, even if there are gaps, they're not if the whole thing adds up to 6,000, there's no million per million yeah, year gap. Exactly. So generally, even if there are gaps, they would argue we're speaking generally of a young a young
0: earth. Totally. And like I should have said this at the beginning, but all of these views were broad brushing and there's tons of different versions of all of these yeah. that accept part and not the rest. Yep. So that's kind of young earth. And then under old earth, there's a variety of views, all of which have different ways of arriving at the conclusion that the earth is actually much, much older, more like along the lines of what the kind of modern scientific consensus yeah. says. Um, one of these is the day age theory. This is the idea based in linguistics, actually, that the Hebrew word for day yom, um, is actually a word with a much broader semantic range than the English word day. Although actually it could be argued and it is argued often that even the English word day has some semantic range. Yes. So I can say back in my grandfather's day, and I don't mean a 24 yeah. hour period. So the argument goes yom is similar to that, that, um, it's demonstrable in in the Bible that that word is used to mean different lengths of time. Um, and so they would just say, each of these represents some indeterminate period of time. Um, And the
1: young earth people would be like, yes, it's certainly possible
0: that it could do that. But what's the plainest. Come on type of thing. And, and similarly within this view, um, father and son, respectively, in Hebrew can also mean forefather and descendant. Yes. And so the idea is the genealogies are talking about forefathers and descendants, not necessarily fathers and sons every time. Um,
1: Abraham is all of Israel's father. Yeah. Our father, Abraham.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and similarly, the son of David could be 10 generations down. So they say the genealogies are there, but it's not dishonest or unfaithful to the Bible to say that they could be skipping thousands of years or more. And on the spectrum
1: days. of, of how long those days were, you have people who are like they're tens of thousands of years, they're millions of years, billions of years, totally so huge, a huge range.
0: Now, um, another kind of subset of that, which is interesting. And again, these are kind of mix and match to some extent is something called gap theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe this is, this is John Salehammer's view, right? Some version. of I this? don't know. I think it is. I know that. Kevin, you want to check? Kevin's shaking his he head at me. It's, but, Okay, he, so he's got his own, but it does include at least I think this idea, which is that um, there's a gap between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. Yeah, and so Genesis one one is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.
1: That's the creation of matter.
0: So and all of creation
1: is there, and then, which is this is what's weird is Genesis one two all of a sudden.
0: This is hard to deal with if you're on the other side, if you're, if you're in the young earth camp.
1: Genesis one, two, God is hovering over the face of the deep. The spirit is hovering over the waters. So before day one of let there be light, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So where does that take place chronologically? Yeah. Why is there the spirit hovering over the waters and the deep and the Tohu babohu in Hebrew, the, the, the kind of.
0: The w- f- wilderness wasteland. Wilderness
1: wasteland type of thing. So, so some people would postulate, well, And this is where it kind of gets weird because some people would just say, okay, God created the matter and we don't know how long it got there. And that's one easy version of it. Some other people would argue that there was a whole, there was like, we don't even know
0: what could have happened, but there,
1: there could have been a whole world going on and obsessive gardener seems to like this view, by the way, God God brought judgment on some sense on the created order and it's Tohu Babohu and it's this, this wasteland of chaos. And then the spirit of God is hovering over it waiting to create again. Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things that sounds weird at first, but again, if you've just been brought up thinking in one way, your whole life, you got to wrestle with that. Yeah. Genesis in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Verse two, there's something there that the spirit is hovering. It's over. similar
0: to another thing we'll bring up and not, not conclude, but it's similar to the fact that, you know, Cain leaves and there's suddenly people for him to make a city with. And you, you might at some point go, wait a second, what, where'd these other people come from? By the way, I'm just going to blow right past the fact that you use the word postulate, which is very homeschool of you. I, I should say,
1: I was probably got it from my daughter for me. <laughs>
0: isaac just got some homeschool kids who could teach him words like postulate yeah I, I it sounds like a word that you'd make fun of me for saying that's why yeah I have it and so
1: obsessive Gardner said pre-adamite civilization so one of those <laughs> with one, a barfy face by the way one of, those, <laughs> one of those one of those views would say that there was a whole and it, i mean you could i don't want to go too it's just interesting i don't want to go down yeah. too far dumps but i mean there's whole views that would talk about before adam was created god God created all this other things, and then they went wicked, and God had to bring judgment on on this. And that existed for thousands, millions, who knows? And then some people would say, "Well, where do you think all the demons came from? Where do you think why is there why is there a Satan in the garden?" Yeah. Well, he's the spirit of some judged being in this pre-Adamic race that existed. Yeah in Genesis one, two. So there's all kinds yeah. of.
0: And if you if you grew up with a strict view of, of a different type, that sounds wild and out of control. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things about it are. Oh, and I should have mentioned this because I blew right through um, day age theory pretty quick. But one of the kind of hallmarks of day age theory is that these days are sequential and are locked into history in some way. So yeah,
1: typically they will have it's it's not the same. It's not saying that evolution occurred over these times. What they right. typically argue is that at some point in this age, God divinely intervened and
0: creates boom, these creative things. explosion. And that's also that particular idea is associated with something called progressive creationism. Yeah. And so you get things like you know, well, we have these time periods in the fossil record where there seem to just be these explosions of new life forms and stuff, yeah. and that that's because that's one of these creation days. Yeah. Which is actually millions of years long so um so that's that gap theory again it's, it's an interesting idea that there's this gap between one one and one two that god creates the cosmos and then there's all these different views about so then the days of creation could be god just creating israel or just creating the garden of eden or bringing order to everything else oh, that's there yeah
1: because uh okay we only got seven minutes so i know how we're gonna do um, this
0: there's there's one
1: th- there's one cool thing we wanted to, to t- so the other view is uh, probably the biggest proponent is Francis Collins' biologos. They're they're yeah. Christians who
0: theistic evolution.
1: Yeah. So they would say that um, God was guiding the process, or He at least put things in into motion type of thing. And there's to guide the
0: process of evolution. You're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and there's a range of views within that of that oh, kind of theistic yeah. evolution,
1: and yeah, a wide range of views on that. And it's it's not as simple. Um, but I do want to get I wanted to talk about the temple. Yeah,
0: thing. That's, that's worth it. And I think we've hit the big ones quickly enough. Um, if you have questions, we'll do a Q&A episode. So feel free to email me if you're like, wait a second, I need to know more about gap theory or whatever. Um, but there's, there's a, a view that sort of sits outside of all of these views because it, it allows any of them to be true and work within yeah. it. Um, and this has to do with the, the temple theme or the temple image yeah. that's there in Genesis one and two. Okay. Um, and the basic idea here, and Isaac can unpack it more, um, is that God is in the creation account, creating a temple space, inaugurating a temple space and taking up residence yeah. in that temple space. Okay. So what's the significance and this is of that?
1: This is why this is so good. And this is why if you're only focused on your 21st century questions and not trying to say, what is the Bible trying to do here? You can miss this completely because most Christians can I mean, grew up in the church. You never, never see this stuff, but okay. So in the other parallel ancient creation accounts you have a deity who overcomes some cosmic conflict as we mentioned marduk slays these people in the Numa elish and then at the end of these the the deity the god builds a temple and then he dwells in that temple and rules and reigns from this temple okay this is standard it's standard like it's always some cosmic conflict happens the deity has to conquer some enemies, do this, X, Y, Z, solve the problem. And then he takes up his rest, which means to rule and reign and to rest in the temple. It's the the, the uh, example that it's John- It's sitting
0: upon a throne, not laying down in bed.
1: The example that John Walton uses, a biblical scholar, is that of the White House. And so when someone rests from the campaign trail and enters into the White House-
0: Sits down in the Oval he's, Office- he's
1: resting from the work of running but now he's taken his his role up as this, the one america we don't have one sovereign yeah. deity type of thing but you get the point but a
0: victorious king walking into his conquered palace and sitting on the golden throne
1: and he's resting but it's a rest that also simultaneously means his sovereign rule has begun okay but it always always ends with a temple scene you have to build the temple so it, what's so crazy about genesis is that it, it god is creating this space on every day, every day. And then when you're getting to the last day, day seven says, God rest. And if you're an ancient person, you're going, where, where's the temple? Where's this deity's temple? And it's just not there at all. But what do we do here? Where's God, where's God dwelling? At that point, God is dwelling with man. He's dwelling with man, which is like what the other gods are hidden in darkness in their temple, but this God dwells and walks with man. And then if once you understand that it, it unlocks so much, so much more of the Bible. So what is God doing in the wilderness wanderings? He is tabernacling he's dwelling with his people yeah and then even when solomon dedicates the temple which is like okay well that may be true in genesis but then we get to the temple period and God's now in a temple solomon says in his prayer Oh, we know this temple can't contain yeah. you. Heaven and earth. The highest heavens can't contain you.
0: And by the way, side note, as they're building the temple and the tabernacle, what kind of imagery is yeah. all over everything? There's trees and branches and pomegranates, pomegranates and fig. cherubim on the veil. Like yeah. there's all of these images that are meant to evoke the garden yeah. from Genesis and 1. And
1: Josephus of first century uh, Jewish historian says that. He's like, everything in the in the temple is supposed to in- invoke the garden. And that like this this kind of mini cosmos rep- represented in the temple. So then when you get to Jesus, what is God trying to do? In the beginning was the word, the word was God. The word was God, the word is God. And then in John 1 14 at the end of it, it says, and then God
0: became flesh and came
1: flesh and dwelt among us. It's God wanting to dwell with humans. And it's like, what it well, I don't even this is going to be my language is too small. It's diminutive. What a privilege. Privilege yeah. does not count. What an honor. God is going to dwell with human beings. And then when we flash forward in Revelation, at the end of the Christian story, the end of the Christian narrative, it's like, this is the best. There's no crying. There's no more tears, no anything else. Why?
0: Behold. There,
1: God, the dwelling place of God is with men. Everything with is humans. as it was,
0: restored as it was at the beginning. And, and not only that, I mean, we, don't, we truly don't have time, not that we would have anyway, to get into it, but um, I mean, the, the pattern that's laid out in Genesis one, it has so many echoes of temple construction yeah. and the sequence of doing that. Because
1: um, God's temple is with, me, with men, that the garden is the, the meeting place of heaven and earth. And that's what a temple is, the meeting place of heaven and earth. And you know what captures this really well? This is a, a next level connection right here.
0: I like it, okay. I'm excited.
1: in the movie Nacho Libre, The opening song is, I am, Mm. I am a real religious man. But in that, there's a line that says, my temple, the whole wide world. Mm. And little did they know that that's actually sound Christian theology. That the entire cosmos was intended to be the dwelling place of God and man overlapping. Yeah. And at the end of the Christian story is a drawback to the garden. And you know that we've said this a lot at this church. You know this because it's like, John's trying to give you hint to make it a good movie, but just so everyone gets it at the end, he's going, oh, and then guess what I saw at the final thing? There's the tree of life there yep. with the healing for the nation. So they make it explicitly clear. Yeah. But, what does
0: Nacho Libre mean when he says, when you look at my biceps with the eyes of a dove? Uh, is that also Christian?
1: Uh, strong arm. Oh, yes. Uh, here's <laughs> So and to kind of wrap this up is... It's important to to talk and discuss those those secondary issues. It's not like we're saying they don't matter, um, but Christians miss miss out on so much of the rich yeah. biblical truths that are. If if you're only focusing on that stuff, you don't get that God is making a dwelling place for Him to live alongside. You don't get creationist temple. Yeah. You don't see the tabernacle as temple. You don't see the end of revelation saying there's no need for a temple because God dwells with people.
0: Yeah. And if, and if I could make a, you know, tag on an apologetic argument with this too, is that as a Christian, if you're focused on defending the Bible against science, which as we said for like the first 20 minutes of this is oh. a misguided effort, you miss an opportunity to, let's say somebody d- does have questions about that how much better to say, oh yeah, no, that's all really interesting. And there's actually a ton of different views in Christianity about how old the earth is and how all this stuff works. But what we do know and what, the, what this story is really trying to teach is that God created the world good with order for human flourishing, with humanity's best interests in mind. And he made human beings with value and dignity and worth. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's why Christians believe that all human beings are valuable, and worthy of love yeah. and care. And, um, so you, and why the
1: scientific enterprise can get off the ground yeah. because it presupposes a consistent observable universe that obeys laws that came from yeah. somewhere.
0: And I'm not trying to say you dodged the question, but just you can very honestly say, no, that's really interesting. We could talk about it, but it's not. But the main point of that story is there's one good God who made everything and wants humanity to flourish. Um, and in fact, I'll bet half the stuff you believe about human beings and their value yeah. doesn't make sense without that. Um, and so I would just encourage you don't feel defensive about this stuff. The Bible and science are not remotely at odds. It's not it, Like you said earlier, it's a category mistake to even suppose that. And so instead with, with confidence, you say, no, this is a story about a good God's good creation and his love for his creation and mm-hmm. humanity. Um, and then we, you know, we put those debates where they belong, which is they're good, they're worthy of, of time, but the stakes are lower than we often make them. I think
1: yeah, and maybe. Maybe in the future, someday humanity might figure it all out and then they'll discover it was what the Bible was saying all along.
0: That's good. We could end it on that. Yeah, on that note, we'll see you guys next week where we talk about yet another brutal topic. Is the Old Testament a hyper-violent, brutal thing? We'll talk about that next week. Come out here next week. (laughs) Have a good one. Oh, and we go out with Nacho on the screen. night, everybody.